I'm Charlie. I've been in the Air Force for 12 years. I'm an A-10 pilot. The A-10 is a single-seat, close-air support aircraft. It was designed specifically for that mission and is best known for the very large 30-millimeter cannon that the airplane is built around. This year, I'm here at the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, SAS, it's known as. The school has a PhD faculty and then 49 students this year, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Marine, uh, U.S. Army student, and then also five international officers from the Netherlands, France, Australia, Canada, and Japan. We just got back about a month ago from a trip to Vietnam where we went through Hanoi up in the north and then Hue, which is the ancient capital, and then down south to Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, as it's officially known now. The purpose of our trip to Vietnam was really to try and view the American experience in Vietnam from the North Vietnamese perspective, which is they waged a war of independence against a puppet regime in the South that was backed by France and then the United States that were imperialist powers, what that war was about, and then what the result of that war meant in terms of victory. That was my second time to Vietnam. I went in 2004 when I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy, and we did much the same itinerary. One example, we went to the Hanoi Hilton, which is the nickname for the prison where the North Vietnamese kept all the American pilots that they shot down. And I had a academic understanding of the code of conduct, which is a short set of articles about how you should conduct yourself as a prisoner of war if you're ever captured. I hadn't been through any formal training, and the dream of being an Air Force pilot was still years in the future. It was still a moving experience to walk through that building in those spaces where so many Americans suffered an imprisonment. But to go back 13 years later now as someone who's been combat mission ready in the A-10, has gone to Afghanistan and the flown over northern Syria recently, has been through survival training and resistance training, had to fly over places like Raqqa and contemplate what my future would be if the airplane failed me or there was a threat or something bad happened. And it was a much more personal experience going back 13 years later. Over the last 12 years flying the A-10, I've been to Korea, and then I've deployed to Afghanistan, and then also Turkey to fly missions in Syria. In Korea, I was fairly young. This is 2007 to 2009. About an hour south of Seoul is where the base is. The A-10 squadron there, along with an F-16 squadron, the two most forward-deployed, permanently-stationed U.S. fighter squadrons in the world. Both those squadrons train to be ready to take the fight north in the event of North Korean aggression every night. And, you know, our mission was to be ready at the drop of a hat. So we would fly up north on training missions. We'd work with either U.S. ground controllers or South Korean ground controllers on the very territory that North Korea would have to invade if they came south. We'd practice striking particular targets, and you'd be able to look across the demilitarized zone into the black hole that is North Korea at night, and you could see the demilitarized zone in the daytime as you fly and you'd prepare for that war. Uh, so today, looking at Korea, I, I think a lot about the guys I know that are over in the 25th Fighter Squadron preparing for that mission still, just being ready to fight that war tonight if need be. In 2011, I went to Kandahar Air Base in Afghanistan. So we'd go out uh, daily and look for people in placing improvised explosives on the road or look at mortar positions from the night before to see if there was anybody there to look at villages that troops were going to go clear later in the day to see if we could detect a pattern of life or anything suspicious. And then, this was 2011, so the tail end of the surge in Afghanistan, troops would get into uh, what we call troops in contact, so they'd get into a firefight with the enemy and we would react to those, get overhead and provide lethal fire against the enemy if we had to, help our forces on the ground disengage or kill the enemy. To put it in perspective, I flew 115 sorties in Afghanistan and on seven of those sorties I actually employed weapons. Syria, 60 sorties and dropped on 47, 48 of them 
and a number of times dropped every weapon off of the airplane that I had. So a much faster paced war. So that was uh, the fall of 15 to the spring of 16. I got there right as Sinjar up in northern Iraq was being retaken and then left right before the offensive to take Mosul started. So even though there weren't major in the press offensives going on, there was still quite a lot of action as the Syrian democratic forces pushed essentially from Sinjar down to the Euphrates River Valley. Hey, like up? I said, it didn't open this <laughs> no, way. No, it didn't open that way. Thanks for the conference room. Appreciate mm-hmm. it. You're welcome. <laughs> We're going to go out and talk to uh, Boss and Bogey at the B-52 about some of our Vietnam trip stuff. Thanks, Phil. Mm-hmm. Some of the noise is a generator building outside, and then you can hear a T-1 flying overhead, maybe. A T-1 is the airplane that... Uh, cargo pilots fly for the last half of pilot training. So the first half of pilot training, everybody's in a T-6 Texan, which is a single engine prop plane. And then the last six months, guys are gonna fly fighters and bombers uh, like Bogey and Boss and I did. We fly the T-38 and for cargo and tanker pilots, they fly the T-1. So it's kind of a Learjet type uh, airplane. All those T aircraft, T stands for, for trainer, And then we'll be talking a lot about a lot of airplanes today. T's are trainers, B's are bombers, C's are cargo, F are fighters. Uh, I can't see what that is overhead right now. As we walk towards the B-52, we can see across the the Air University circle, there's four fighters from the Vietnam era. And they sit predominantly at the front. And then over to the side next to the main drag is the B-52, which is a strategic bomber. Uh, it's got a hundred and some foot wingspan. This one's painted black on the bottom and camouflage on the top so that it can be camouflaged for night missions over Hanoi, uh, really is where they were using combat predominantly. And they formed the deterrent arm of, uh, or one of the three deterrent arms for the US triad. So bombers, ICBMs, and then submarine missiles. And that's the uh, the T-1 that you can hear flying over. They're, they're doing what pilots call beating up the pattern. They're flying multiple approaches for training, so it's a pilot training aircraft. They'll do multiple approaches, making sure they know how to land the airplane. And for the T-1 folks, they're really focusing on a crew complement. So all the cargo airplanes have a pilot and a co-pilot. So they're working on that kind of coordination, who runs the checklist, who's touching the throttles at which time, who's flying the airplane, who's talking to air traffic control, and they're working through that which is why they fly the T-1. All the fighter and bomber guys fly the T-38, and that's focused on single seat. You do everything yourself, because that's probably what you're gonna have to do in your fighter. Hey boss, how's it going? Hey man. Good. Bogey, what's up? Not too much, man. How are you doing? Good. My name is Bogey, and uh, that is definitely not my real name. So just what is in a call sign, you need to understand a little bit of the history of why we have call signs. I believe the tradition actually started around World War II as pilots actually got the means of talking to each other over the radio and you started to get embroiled into dogfights where you have aerial combat between uh, airplanes on different sides. Uh, It became very important to talk back and forth to each other, but you have to be very succinct to, to who you're calling. You can't just yell over the radio, hey Jim or hey Tom, look out, there's someone behind you. 
there wanted to be a little bit of operational security. You don't want to give away the name of who you're actually out talking to or what is out there. The idea came up quickly of nicknames. It started with more formal process. A formation was given a specific flying call sign to use for that day. And then some enterprising college graduate realized that nicknames work just as well in the heat and fire of combat, it's pretty difficult to remember what call sign an individual is flying with that specific day because it can change, whereas your personal nickname is very easy to remember. So instead of saying, hey, Tom, it would be, hey, boss, look out behind you. There is somebody there at your six o'clock. Just like getting any other nickname, you typically do something terrible of which you are completely embarrassed, and then a name is derived from that and it sticks. This is OnStar, and the story behind my call sign, like Bogey said, is it's usually something embarrassing. At the time, OnStar was a, an option in most Chevrolet cars in the U.S. There was a little blue button up above your rearview mirror that you could hit, and it would connect you to roadside assistance, and it could unlock your doors or give you directions. I mean, this is before smartphones were really all in vogue, and you'd get directions on your phone. So I was a young lieutenant in Korea. They would send young lieutenants out to fly by ourselves because we had too many lieutenants in the squadron and I landed and it snowed the day before and our normal taxi route on the airfield was closed and so I had to go someplace else. I ended up in a back maintenance storage area of the airbase and I had to pull out the airfield map and start looking at it and devise my genius plan of how to get out of there. I'm about to execute my genius plan with all the approval I need from ground control and I realized that the buildings that I have to taxi between are too close. So now I have to confess my mistake. I have to call the operations desk where there is a captain or major in the squadron sitting there with one of my lieutenant friends, and it's on the speaker so everybody can hear it. And I go, hey, I need wing walkers in the northeast leg of the Alpha Diamond, to which the appropriate question from them was why, and I have to explain how I got all turned around. Then they asked some other pilot that was flying, they go, Ace-01, do you know where he is and can you help him out? And there was, there was no help to be had. So. Maintenance had to come out and put a tug onto the jet and get me all turned around. So I got OnStar for having to call for directions on my home airfield. I'm Boss. I am a previous B-52 pilot and now B-2 pilot. I'm standing under the wing of a B-52D model, 488,000 pound bomber from the 1970s, which is actually still flying in the variant of the H model today. We had just recently taken a trip to Vietnam with our School of Advanced Air and Space Studies uh, course, and we actually got a chance to see wreckage of shot down B-52s around the Hanoi area from Operation Linebacker, which took place in around the uh, 1973 timeframe. It was difficult for me as I knew instructors uh, when I first got to the B-52 community that had flown D models themselves and had friends that had been shot down in Vietnam. Due to the nature of all of these changes we've had from the third generation of Vietnam to the fifth generation of now, it is remarkable to see how the basic teamwork principles are still the same. We are still exercising various elements of that teamwork today. The tactics have evolved, especially with the incorporation of our fifth generation aspects. For a brief recap on generations, if you think of the uh, first generation as your World War One wooden airframe constructed, very rudimentary stick and rudder type of airplanes, your second generation, you get the enclosed cockpits with greater maneuverability inherent to your World War II fighters followed by Generation 3, which is where you start to incorporate more advanced avionics and a radar, more towards your F4 type of platforms. 
followed by Generation 4, which is where now you have your uh, F-15s, F-16s, your Eurofighters. That's where you start to get more advanced avionics integrated to the uh, airframe itself, along with self-contained radar systems. And now moving on to the fifth generation, which is where your avionics are even more integrated and all encompassed within a uh, stealth body. With stealth being primarily an anti-radar platform, our enemies are trying to find ways to go around it using various other means to counter this very specific advantage that the United States has uh, attempted to take advantage of for the last 25 years. When we talk about air superiority, air superiority is not necessarily just shooting airplanes in the air, it's also killing airplanes on the ground. So in that case, the synergy between the bomber and the fighter platforms is manifest today, even between the B-2 and the F-22 as we conduct joint operations. And don't forget the uh, surface-to-air missile threats that are on the ground, which are one of the many ways our potential adversaries have attempted to develop in order to counter stealth. In Syria, for example, there was the possibility that surface-to-air missiles might have been used by the Syrian government. So they used F-22s in the leading edge when we first went into that country, but uh, it hasn't really been needed since. However, we still work and focus every day to train on our teamwork because it is important should we ever be needed. I think that highlights the diversity of our teamwork. Bogey mentions the surface-to-air threat as well as the air-to-air threat. There are other players, the electronic attack that we get support from the air, from the Navy, the harm shooters, so the high-speed anti-radiation missiles off of the F-16s. Those are all critical team players for stealth operations. For uh, long-range strikes, so is the tanker teams, as well as the intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance aircraft that provide us up-to-date targeting and threat data. Picking up on the tanker part, I think it's critical for the long-range strike assets to have a beneficial relationship with the aerial refueling tankers of the U.S. Air Force as well as our coalition partners. Recently, for assurance and deterrence missions in uh, October of 2017, B-2s flew out to the Pacific and returned home to assure our allies in the region of our commitment. To do that, though, to take off from Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri in the middle of the United States and fly all the way to Guam, uh, which is the farthest part of the Pacific Ocean, requires aerial refueling multiple times. This B-2 took off from Whiteman, flew to Anderson Air Force Base in Guam, required at least two to three air refuelings, changed crews, and then flew all the way home for a 37 total hour mission. So the link between the tankers and global strikes is indivisible. Thanks, guys. See you later. See you, ma'am. See you. We're over in the SOS cafeteria with two of my classmates who are intelligence officers. One of our primary roles as intel professionals is to try to understand the adversary as much as we can to aid our operations guys in making decisions about what the battle space is going to look like. One of the most fascinating opportunities we had recently was the class trip to Vietnam. We were able to see from the North Vietnamese perspective their understanding of what was happening during the war, what their decision-making process was. Part of our role and responsibility when we are mission planning and trying to develop our targets is understanding how the adversary operates. 
We were looking at it from both the cultural perspective of understanding the Vietnamese people and what their priorities were, as well as a targeting perspective of how were they actually moving munitions, how were they moving troops, being able to go see the Long Bien Bridge or the Paul Dumer Bridge, and how we had to take so many passes over it because our targeting was so imprecise for so many years before we had precision munitions, or the fact that they were able to outflank the U.S. essentially by using um, the Ho Chi Minh Trail that was outside of Vietnam and the implications of what those types of operations were causing for our troops. The Ho Chi Minh Trail was intriguing because they were actually going from North Vietnam into Laos and uh, Thailand and Cambodia by being able to push into other countries that the U.S. did not want to send troops into. They were simply evading us. It's very hard to intercept troops and logistics and supplies that are moving outside of your area of combat without proper political authorization to engage along that trail. You could see the hilly terrain, how difficult it was for the North Vietnamese to move supplies through those locations. And despite the fact that it was so complicated for them to traverse that terrain, we were challenged at times to target them with the thick canopies and they did a lot of their movement under the cover of darkness. A lot of that has commonalities to what we're seeing in Iraq and Afghanistan today. We see a lot of mobile units of people that are popping up, causing issues for our local troops, and then disappearing back into the populace. How do you actually go after and target without accidentally taking civilian casualties? There's a lot of concerns in terms of both precision of how we target, as well as how we track certain individuals to make sure that they are actually affiliated with a group that is a known target or terrorist organization. While our precision has gotten a lot better, target identification is definitely one of the challenges to figure out exactly what those critical aspects of their network might be that we need to target. The Ho Chi Minh Trail, you can read accounts from Vietnamese soldiers talking about moonscapes and trucks getting stuck in mud because of the thousands of tons of bombs that we dropped to try and shut down that trail in the woods. Right after I left Insulik, the A-10's got a laser-guided rocket where the warhead on it is just about the size of a roll of, of quarters and they started to shoot those in Mosul down urban canyons with people around and civilians and enemy intermix and the unmanned aerial vehicles or the forces on the ground would find a machine gunner in the second story window on the left hand side of a building and they would shoot these into that specific window at that specific machine gunner. So we've gone from in the course of a generation and a half, maybe two generations of carpet bombing with thousands and thousands of pounds of bombs to close the trail to very, very precise weapons so that when we do identify the right target, we can strike it without hitting anything else we don't want to hit. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. See ya. Hey, buddy. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. I'm Mike. I fly uh, C-130s for a living. When we talk about mobility aircraft in the United States Air Force, we're talking about cargo planes, troop carriers, and air refueling platforms or tankers. Well, I would say that air mobility is important because it underpins U.S. and NATO military strategy and our grand strategy of global engagement. Professor Larry Sabato of the University of Virginia mentioned recently that U.S. troops or, or military folks are present in 165 of 195 countries worldwide, and none of that happens without air mobility. Personally, I fly a C-130J. It's the latest edition of a 60-year-old uh, design. The most modern version is a joy to fly, as I'm sure the, the folks that flew the older one would tell you, it was a joy to fly as well. The primary missions were troop carriers uh, and uh, paratroop drops. 
but uh, also usable for all sorts of cargo. There's air refueling variants. Uh, we use it frequently for aeromedical evacuation, humanitarian relief operations. So a great variety of, of missions that happen within that strategy of global engagement. That's going to allow in the cafeteria here, so we're going to go someplace else. Always a pleasure, OnStar. See ya. So we left the building by the semicircle of Vietnam-era fighter jets, and now we're sitting next to a B-25 bomber from World War II. It's a twin-engine propeller plane. This one is called Poopsie with a cartoon dog on the front, and it's got the aircrew names and the number of bombs it dropped in combat. The B-25 is probably most famous for its role in the Doolittle raid, where Colonel Jimmy Doolittle got a bunch of aircrew together in secret shortly after Pearl Harbor and devised a plan to take it back to Japan and bomb Tokyo. There's tons of movies and books about it. 30 Seconds Over Tokyo is a good one. We've heard the T-1 flying over, and as we look down the street from the air park, you can see a T-38, which is the other advanced trainer. The bomber and fighter guys fly the T-38, so I flew the T-38. I pass it every day when I come into work, and whenever I see that airplane, I think of hot Texas summers and sweating profusely, carrying the parachute out to the airplane and sweating profusely because there's no air conditioning in ground ops and sweating profusely because I'm nervous about messing up and thinking about me as a lieutenant at that era where all I had to know was that airplane and the T-38 and had no weapons and everything then seemed knowable. Now looking back over 12 years since pilot training of having to know the A-10 and all the weapons on it and how to integrate with folks on the ground and what Intel can give me and how the F-22s can best support you know, my mission if I need them and all those pieces coming together, how different tankers, rejoins work and all of that, realizing that as a lieutenant I was wrong and it may not be possible to know and understand everything and perfection may not actually be achievable, but we still come, we still study and we still think about it and we still pursue it so that we can really be as good as we can be when the time comes to step back into the fold and back into combat and that we're ready for that challenge when it comes.